Pulmonary HealWells Healthcare Podcast. This week we are bringing to you one of our favorite episodes from our first podcasting season. This episode was originally recorded in uh, June of 2020, and this is our conversation, or Cal and Kathy's conversation, with Dr. J. Pop, Jennifer Hutton, Doctor of Physical Therapy. Please enjoy and take a moment to like us, write a quick review wherever you catch this podcast. It really helps us out a lot. And uh, we look forward to hearing your feedback. As always, uh, we like to start off with a little massage pun to set the stage. Life is too short to be serious all the time. So if you can't laugh at yourself, call us and we'll laugh at you. Um, okay, you guys ready? This one? I've been, I've been waiting on this one. I think this is, this is good stuff. Did you hear about the shady massage practice run by bears? Turns out it was just a front for honey laundering. That's right. <laughs> oh my. <laughs> well, I, Kathy and I, like if, if you could, oh my. Say, we would be like crawling over each other to introduce <laughs> you to our guests today. Um, I think so. Dr. J. Pop, um, Jennifer Hutton, Doctor of Physical Therapy, uh, who needs no introduction, but we'll let her introduce herself. And, uh, and I'm sorry, I didn't check. Your, your pronouns are, are she, her? <laughs> she, her. Um, yes. so, so we will let Dr. J. Pop introduce herself. Thanks. Well, for being thank on. you. Thank you for having me on. I'm Jennifer Hutton, and I am a pediatric physical therapist in Nashville, Tennessee. I've worked in peds for the last whew, 10 years, I think it is, therapist for the last 12. And I, um, I just did the anti-racism and allyship workshop. And what I've been telling people is I think that my desire to be an ally to special needs kids is really what took me out of myself as a minority to understand what it looks like for another population. And so now I'm trying to help others learn how to be allies to the BIPOC community. Um, and it's, it's been a ride, but I'm really excited about it. We're excited that you're gonna let us join the ride or that we're, I don't know who's joining whose ride, but we're riding together. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, so, you know, as you were introducing yourself, one thing occurred to me, and we'll probably make you do this throughout the episode, but, um, I think Kathy and I now are hip to BIPOC, but what is, what is the BIPOC community? Um, you know, I was like today years old when I learned that term and um, yeah. Yes, so um, BIPOC stands for Black and Indigenous People of Color. And the goal was not to erase cultures with it instead of just saying people of color in general. That's why they spread it out for, for BIPOC. Okay. Yes. So I feel like when we were getting ready for this episode, one of the things we talked about, of course, is that we had a million questions for you and sort of what's the best way to, to set the stage. And, and we sort of agreed that you can't really have a meaningful conversation about how to undo racism and how to become a meaningful ally without understanding the history. Um, so understanding that our episode um, is, <laughs> is not three days long, um, what do, we, what do we need to know that we probably don't know um, about the BIPOC community and healthcare? And tell us, give us the, the, the primer, I guess, if you can. The Spark, Spark Notes version of, <laughs> of it. Yes. Um, well, 
I kind of set the stage in the webinar just to show the relationship of not only Blacks, but pretty much all minorities and immigrants um, when this country was building itself. And the thought was that if you were not white, you were inferior. And so if you were a slave, your slave master had full and total control over what your health care would look like and if you would even receive it. Um, and sometimes you got treatment, sometimes you did not. Sometimes there were doctors that were willing, and if they were willing, they also could not treat white people. So they had to be just for the slaves. Um, the saving grace, and I always love to come back to something that's, that's positive, um, there were healers in the slave communities that came from Africa um, and other areas and, and said, we used herbs, we used spices, we used nature to heal. And so they found things in America that they were able to use on themselves if they could not get treatment. But that's what it looked like during slavery. Then when slavery ended, you know, the, the white community said, yep, we need to be separate. That's great that you're free but we need to set some laws in place so that we can keep everybody apart. So that's where you have the black code or the Jim Crow laws. And in the Jim Crow laws, it had everything from marriage, transportation, education, recreation, entertainment, and of course, healthcare. So there were, the, the wards had to be separated in the hospital. A nurse, a white nurse could refuse to treat um, a black patient. Um, everything still had to be separated in all senses. And many of them ended up having to sign up for um, research as research participants in order to get treatment. Now, if you think about their literacy levels, uh, because they weren't allowed to learn how to read, how many people could probably read a contract telling you what the side effects of a treatment are? So they were really at the mercy, again, of the healthcare provider. So then you have all of those issues, and then you come to the end of the Jim Crow era, and the hospital was probably the only, or healthcare was the only place where there was no protest, because if you did not treat a person of color, if you refused, then the government would not give you money. So it became more about the green than about the color. And my thought was to give everybody that stage was how, if I never had control from the beginning of my healthcare and my body and what was done, not only in life, but also in death, because a lot of them were used as research when they died, and then we have things like the Tuskegee experiment, where they actually had, you know, a, a cure for syphilis, but they didn't give it. Or they, you have people like J. Marion Sims, who was the father of modern gynecology, but he would operate on slaves without anesthesia just to get a technique right. So there's all of these, like you say, earned mistrust. And now all of a sudden, everybody has to be happy-go-lucky <laughs> and work together. You have thought viruses that have developed throughout that whole time on both sides. Um, as I said, you cannot grow up seeing Blacks only and whites only and not have a thought or form an opinion about it. So because we haven't faced and actually dealt with what happened in the origin of healthcare and fitness and everything else, any other system, how in the world do you expect us to really have been, you know, everybody can get along right now. And so to see that history, I really wanted that because 
I feel like we have a lot of cultural competency workshops and diversity workshops and we never really talk about history. And if we don't deal with history, I'm sorry, we're going to continue to repeat it. It's just gonna get more creative. So that was really the goal of, of bringing that part through the webinar. Well, and I, I was so grateful that you, you did it that way. And, I, and you know, we'll get into more topics as we talk, but one of the things that struck me that I think is definitely worth mentioning that I appreciate your Cliff's Notes version and that you left this out, but um, when you say that the slaves would get treatment, when you talked about the quote pathologies that they were treated for, I mean, that was so devastatingly instructive. And just when I think now about the current papers about how there are practicing physicians in the year 2020 who think black people experience pain differently and, and sort of where that came from. And that this is something that is still believed that black people have different muscles than white people. And, you know, so like, what were those pathologies back in, you know, I mean, this is control and power and <laughs> mm -hmm. it, it really was. They had, they took healthcare and framed it to fit their own ideology. That's pretty much yeah. all they did. And this is not just with medicine. This was with religion. This was with education. <laughs> yeah. This was with everything, but they actually would create diagnoses that were specifically for slaves. So let's say they had a slave that wanted to continue to run away. The diagnosis was drapetomania and it was considered a mental illness that they actually had to treat. Um, diesthesia Ethiopica was the rascality or the lazy uh, slave. And when you looked at what their cures were, it was yeah. whippings and more work in the sunshine. Um, there was a belief that we, our blood was not the same, we were built for hard labor and not for actually educational or intellectual purposes. So that has, has literally traveled through. And you said doctors now, there are actual students who still in medical school, who when asked actually said, well, I thought that they did experience pain differently. So that tells you something that was framed for their ideology actually still traveled through because wow. the origin of it was never dealt with. Oh my, <laughs> you know, I, I mean, I, yeah. I know it's heavy. <laughs> I, you know, it, and it is, you know, and, and it's one of those things that for some, like myself, I hear that and I'm like, what? But I think the what in that is that there are individuals who will go, oh, well, yeah, you know, that that's the way that it is. So, you know, I think the historical piece is so important. I, I'm here in Canada. Um, I think there's this misperception that slavery, um, the history of slavery is different in Canada than, mm. than the U.S., which is completely incorrect. Um, I think because of the Underground Railroad, perhaps there is this mis perception around slavery in Canada. Um, Canada is every much a colonized white supremacist beginnings and continuation of the U.S. Mm -hmm. So I think if we're looking at understanding history, you know, I would urge anyone to perhaps educate themselves around the history of slavery in Canada because slavery happened in Canada, both with, with Black 
um, I, it may, maybe there's more awareness around uh, indigenous mm -hmm. um, and the, you know, the relationship between um, indigenous people and, and the colonizers. But yeah, sadly, no different in Canada. Yeah. Well, and Kathy, you, you touched on, um, you know, I mean, I've been, I've been trying to understand for years, sort of how do you unbake a thing that's been baked in and like, understanding the history is key. And I recently took a course right before the one I took with you, um, Dr. J pop about um, how to five racist habits that um, you don't know you're, you're engaging in. Um, and the person who taught the class talked about white supremacy in a way that I had never heard it talked about before. And in a way that made it impossible for me to not understand myself as a white supremacist. Um, and she pointed us to the white supremacy pyramid. And I'm sure that you have seen that, Dr. J. Pop. I don't know if you've seen it, Kathy, but the top 25% of the pyramid is burning things and killing people and genocide and the stuff that we sort of think about when you think white supremacist. But these other 75% is not only stuff that most of the white people I know engage in, but it's under the level of consciousness and the way that the pyramid is described this is the thing is it's like i've been doing terrible things without knowing it and so i'm wondering if you would be willing uh to to define white supremacy in this way for us that that as much as possible makes it tough for us to slip out of those handcuffs mm -hmm. that like we're there <laughs> and i usually take implicit bias and put it right next to white supremacy because white supremacy is the belief that your race as a white person is superior to any other race and therefore you should have priority in all sex implicit bias is attitudes and and beliefs and ideologies that form your decision making and your actions so just like i said a grandmother who saw nothing but whites only colors only could in fact believe well that's that's what i grew up with so yes they do need to be separate because they need their own thing and we that that would be a thought virus that would be an implicit bias and so that how that looks in action is maybe i have beliefs that i actually one i, I always say is if you talk to someone as if they have no knowledge about a subject and the reason that you do that underneath is because of the race um, then that is an implicit bias. That is an example of an implicit bias because you had an idea when you looked at that person and you actually acted on that idea. Nobody can get away from implicit bias. Like <laughs> nobody, including us, because I might feel, I might have mistrust with white people, especially in the healthcare system. I will be honest, all of my doctors are people of color because I know that they understand what my life looks like outside of their four walls and they will take it into account when they are prescribing me healthcare or when they are talking to me about different treatments or medications. Yeah. And I need that. I know that I need that. So the implicit bias might work in my favor for that, but in other areas, it might actually keep me from connecting with people that would be beneficial to have in my circle. So what everybody needs to understand is no, racism doesn't sound great because you, you think of, or white supremacy sounds like people in white hoods burning crosses, but we all have literally taken white supremacy and there are octopus legs that are just dangling yeah. out into all of these different areas of our life. Definitely. 
Well, and I, I, I wanna, I mean, one of the things that we try to do is to, to sort of pause for the, you know, you were like, this is heavy. And, you know, it is, we did a, a talk this morning just about the world of COVID and massage and just people were just glad that we were willing to say like, doesn't this suck? Like you're grieving, you're sad, this is terrible. <laughs> and mm -hmm. I feel like years ago, a friend of mine gave me a book called Quiet and it's about, um, I can't even remember the subtitle, but it's, it, it's really, it feels like a book that's written for extroverts to understand introverts. Mm. And like three chapters in, I felt so horrible about myself because I, technically, I guess I'm probably an ambivert at this point, which means that like I get my energy from being alone, but also being with people. But I had a solid implicit bias that introverted people were shy um, inarticulate, like I had all these negative stories about introverted people. And I, I stopped reading the book for like six months and I still haven't finished it because every time I pick it up, I feel like a piece of garbage. And I, I want to say to the white people who are reading white fragility and reading. So you want to talk mm -hmm. about race and these books that we have to read, keep reading. Going. Because if you feel like crap, you're getting it. <laughs> you're gonna feel like crap it's and you will conviction for a hundred years so yes. don't worry you won't feel like crap for as long as black people felt like crap <laughs> keep going that's what i always say you have to be able to decipher and it takes being extremely aware and i will be i will be honest what i see is decreased level of awareness in white people in outside of their bubble and so it's hard to see the perspective of another race because it doesn't affect you. It doesn't affect anybody really in your circle. So you can't even imagine what's going on in someone else's life. But when you get that feeling, when you're reading something and you're like, oh, that makes me feel bad. Is that conviction? <laughs> because conviction is a good thing. Yeah. It's good to be convicted that you want to change something that you are doing. Guilt and conviction to me are two totally different things because guilt usually doesn't take you anywhere. You can repent and you can say you're sorry, but the conviction says I'm going to change from here on out. Yeah. Like we don't have the luxury of the shame spiral. We don't have time for that. And I think no. right, guilt is immobilizing and is, is a privileged position. Like, yeah. Get over your guilt <laughs> and get to work. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I have another question, but Kathy, do you have a question for Dr. Jacob? I don't want to monopolize her. No, but you know, I, I, I think that that point about conviction is such a critical piece. And I think for me, as I'm on my journey of decolonizing myself, um, and very early in my journey of decolonizing myself, you know, it's that grappling with, should I feel shameful about this? It's like, no, you know, because that really isn't going to get me anywhere. You know, I could... Be, I could be the classic Canadian and say, I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, the typical Canadian thing, but I think that conviction piece really for me encapsulates what I'm trying to be mindful of on my journey of, of expanding my awareness and, and facilitating change in mm -hmm. myself and in the way that I interact with others and how I want to be in this world. I think it is like, I was listening to a, uh, an interview you did uh, with Maestro on the mic. And, and I think it, I know, and, and it was funny because I think it was Maestro who said, when you really look at how baked in racism is, 
you feel like you're looking at a corkboard with red yarn between like suspects and events on like a crime movie. And it's really easy to look at it and be like, holy, like for real? And it's like, no, for real. And we don't have enough cork in the world to actually trace. Or yarn. All, or yarn for that matter. To trace how overlapping this is and how many points of intersection and just, and just unawareness yes. have allowed this to happen. Yes. Um, so, yeah, so I, I think it's, it's really important for us to just notice that if you feel overwhelmed, you're on the right track. <laughs> um, so the thing about healthcare providers believing, white healthcare providers, um, mm -hmm. thinking that basically that just black people experience being a human differently. Um, I, I don't want to do the opposite thing where I assume that you know about Arlene Geronimus and weathering and that whole concept of, okay, you do. So <laughs> I don't want to be like, well, you're a black person who talks about this. You must know who she is. Um, for those of you who don't know who Arlene Geronimus is, um, she did research to look at, she's a white person who um, did some research to look at what is it that makes certain health conditions a more prevalent in the black community, but also um, that these health conditions that white people develop but don't develop until much later in life are showing up much earlier in the lives of black people. And she initially proposed this idea that she called weathering, which you know, if you think about, it, it's like weathering of anything. You leave it out in the weather, and it's going to not do so well. And initially, people said, "Oh, you know, we don't. This is a horrible idea, and I don't like the <laughs> metaphor, and this isn't true." Um, but the beliefs that happened before she really stood up for this view were that basically black people have a different genetic makeup that makes them more susceptible to hypertension or diabetes or stroke and these things that we see much earlier in the black community. And, and what she looked at is that, and, and fill me in if I don't understand this completely or you have a more fleshed out understanding, but that when you leave your house every day with some level of fear and hypervigilance, and when every personal interaction you have, there's a huge uncertainty about how it's gonna go and whether or not you will feel safe or whether you'll make it home, that takes a huge toll on your immune system, your nervous system, like everything in your body doesn't like that. Nothing. And yeah. yeah, and so, um, but it's sort of, you understand if you're, a, if you're a frontline provider, you're a family care provider, mm -hmm you're a white person, you have black people coming in and you're seeing 40 year old black people with hypertension or with diabetes and you're going, geez, these people must eat like crap. These mm -hmm. people must not exercise. These people must, you know, mm -hmm. insert unsavory thing that undoubtedly connects back to poor education and the inability to make better choices. Yes. I mean, how, I, it's so hard to undo that. It is, but if you are truly, if you, that's why I say those diversity and, and racial disparities, healthcare disparity workshops, you're literally just educating them on the symptoms. You yeah. haven't really discussed the cause because yeah. this can be traced back even more than just the weathering. Let's talk about the food that slaves were allowed to eat and right. why pig's feet may be a big deal in the South and why, you know, why chitlins is something that they still eat. <laughs> But 
it was the what was left over that was given yeah. to them. So you didn't even give them the framework to create what a good diet would be. So now you've got these things that have been passed down generations and generations and generations. And it, with all of the disparities, not just healthcare, but economic as well, what is available for them to buy to eat? Like, and this is not all, this is not all black people. This doesn't apply to everybody, but if you don't have that full body knowledge, which is why when I tell people, if you're going to become a healthcare provider, strap up, don't half-ass it. If I can say that on here, please don't consider that you signed up to help people. So you need to understand people, not just your position. This is why I'm huge in looking at behavioral therapy. I'm huge in looking at psychology because I want to know everything about that person. I'm getting them for an hour. I need to know what they're getting the other 23 hours of the day. So that's why I'm saying is I understand you weren't taught it, but if you truly care about your position, go do the work. Yeah. Well, and I wonder that connects me to, so one of the things I wanted to ask you about is um, in some of the stuff I've been reading, some of the authors and educators talk about, there's no such thing as use your privilege because mm. using your privilege relies on the maintenance of a structure where there is privilege. And, you know, my brain kind of explodes every time I think of that because I go like, <laughs> we don't have any model for a world mm -hmm. without hierarchy. And yeah. so if we want to, I don't know how to, what a better phrase would be, but if we want to use the phrase, use your privilege as a placeholder so we come up with something better. Leverage. I think, this is, what'd you say? <laughs> Leverage it. Yeah, <laughs> right. This feels like a place where you could do it is to, to I don't know, it, it seemed a lot easier when I started to talk about it because I think privilege is one of these sticky things, right? Is that you say to a person, you're privileged and they say, well, I worked hard for everything I got. And we're so immersed in privilege that we we really can't see it and i don't know do you do you have what have you seen work in terms of have you seen anything that works to help people it sucks because when you see your privilege you go oh god wow yeah. um but how do you even help people see that your privilege doesn't make you bad like i'm not pointing out what a horrible person you are but you can't deny that you have had opportunities that other people haven't had. Yes, when you've gotten them, you've worked hard and you've capitalized on them, but they were opportunities that other people just plain didn't have because mm -hmm. they were black, because they were indigenous. Right, right. I think um, we're in a sticky part because we're at the beginning. So the first, you know, the first thing for me is everybody has to be willing to put their ego aside and understand what you're actually saying is going on. Because I'm definitely gonna be defiant if you say you're privileged. No, I didn't have a great life, I didn't. Yeah, but when you walked out the door, you didn't consider not coming home. You didn't consider that somebody wasn't gonna to wanna to be treated by you or somebody wasn't gonna sit next to you. So automatically your life was different. And so the people that I've seen actually leverage it now are those are actually students. There have been students that have gone to their administration and say, we're demanding courses like this. 
We are demanding courses where you actually teach us about the history of all of these different cultures in healthcare. You teach us about these different cultures as well so that we understand how to relate to these people when we actually get into the clinic. I was floored by the number of students who reached out and said, oh, we started a petition today. We actually went and had a meeting. I was like, yeah, you did. Yes. <laughs> That's right. And I laugh because I, I wrote my first petition in the seventh grade. So, you know, this has literally been a part of me. <laughs> right. totally. But I'm seeing them say, I want to see my healthcare profession change. And the yeah. only way I can do that is go to where I was educated and say, okay, let's go. The changes are going to have to start here because the educational system before us, we don't have much play in those areas. And it's, yeah. if you think about it, we had to educate ourselves on our history. It, it's whitewashed, it's taken out. So for those people who do have the privilege to go to those higher ups in the hierarchy and say, we see what you're doing here. We yeah. see, because when we're not saying it and you are, it feels totally different for them. And yeah. when the masses are coming together and say, oh no, we're all coming to you to say, this absolutely has to change. Yeah. There's more of us than there are of them. Yes, <laughs> that's true. Well, and to that point, do you, I mean, I haven't been alive that long, but um, long enough that this feels different to me than other mm -hmm. times when sort of race has come up. And I mean, I, I, think, I think you said when you were talking with Meister on the mic that one mm -hmm. of your fears is that it's going to be like by mid-July, everybody's going to be like, oh yeah, racism. I worked on that in June, you know, yes. and, and I... Um, I, I know that our organization has definitely taken up the mantle of like, nope, we're going to keep blowing air into the bellows of that fire because the momentum is there. Mm -hmm. um, and I feel like maybe it was perfect that COVID kind of broke us open in some ways. Set us down, made us think. Yeah, I mean, woo, guess what? Impermanence, here we are. <laughs> what the hell? Let's, let, let, you know, tear the bandaid off of racism and fix this while we're here. Yes, um, exactly. So it feels different to you as well? It definitely does. It, does. it is, I, I was laughing with some of my friends um, because it's it, how I heal is actually talking to my people. It's how I, talking to them and talking to things. And I mentioned that I saw something happen on social media and there were like five white people that like went for it. And I was like, I didn't even have to say anything. Like, they took care of it for us. I said, is this how it's going to be? Because we need to keep pushing if this is what we're going to get to see them actually step up and in front and say no. Watching them in the protest, physically stepping in front of and say no, we're watching you. To see that, to hear it, to watch it, it, it gives you hope. But because, not because of just the past and what has happened in the past, but also because of the generations. Yeah. The era that we're in. It's a very trendy hashtag bandwagon era. Like they, that's what they like. What are we fighting for this week? Right. right. What are we fighting yes. for next? Yes. <laughs> what are we fighting for next week? And it's like, okay, but no, this is this is a fight that we need to keep going, and it's gonna feel different at different stages. It's gonna look different because you're not gonna have the camaraderie that you have right now because everybody's on their own journey. But like I said, if you're convicted then you'll keep going. Yeah. 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 And I think, I don't know if it hits other people this way, but I, you know, the class I took right before yours really like put me back on my heels and I was like, whoa, like, I mean, 
I don't know that I would have given myself a capital W woke, but I was like, I'm paying attention. <laughs> and, and after that class, I was like, oh, I still have my sleep mask on. Um, and, and what was so interesting is that I, I attended that class. And then later that same day, actually, I, I attended your class and you both, to my knowledge, you don't know each other, but you use the same essential pillars to help us understand the history. And she did this great thing where she said, it's not like we haven't been telling you people what we need. You have just been bringing us casseroles when what we need is something else. You know, and she said, don't be the well-meaning neighbor who brings crap that we don't need. We have a wish list and we've been dreaming it for hundreds of years. And when I attended those two classes and heard you both sort of lay almost identical groundwork, I was like, oh, like my first, my first inclination was, oh, like this is like a conspiracy and, and they're all talking about the same stuff. And then I was like, oh, no, no, the conspiracy is racism. And, and people who've really been looking at it have figured out what the legs of the chair are and they want to pull them out. And I was like, oh, I'm such a white person. Like, oh, gosh, no, this isn't new. In fact, I have probably heard this before, but I didn't mm-hmm. want to hear it. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's one of those things where you hear it and you go, oh, yeah, it so feels we, bad. I don't feel good. And yeah. yeah. So what is what does allyship look like? Like one of the one of the racist behaviors that was exposed in this course was what she called performative allyship. Uh-huh. And yeah. um, <laughs> I, this is where I wish it was a video podcast because <laughs> your face that was amazing. Um, mm-hmm, yep, that's a sucky thing that people do. <laughs> yep, sure enough. Um, and so the, basically, this is letting the whole world know how nice you are to black people basically yeah not really making those deep internal changes that will actually undo a systemic Mm -hmm. problem like racism so Mm -hmm. as as movement professionals as massage therapists like what is meaningful allyship what what can we do like what's the it may not even be that we can take action yet except to educate ourselves but where would you start i definitely think and the what I have heard and seen is that I say educate and people feel like they can't move until they educate. And that's just not real life. Like that's not how we even got our certificates and degrees. Like we, we learned and we clinical, then we learned and we interned and we learned. As we went, we continued to learn and we messed up. <laughs> we made a lot of mistakes. We probably wish some of those things didn't happen, but we learned from them. And then the next time we did better. Everything that you have done in your journey as a healthcare professional, you are now recreating it with the stages to allyship. You are learning and you have to educate yourself. And this is why that performance allyship, that comes from not having conviction. That comes from just wanting to make sure it looks like you're getting it done, but you truly don't believe it. You still are dealing with your own um, white privilege, implicit bias. So it still comes out as your microaggressions, but you put up on, their, on your Instagram or your Facebook or you, know, you do a little sign or something. So people know, no, I believe that Black Lives Matter. Well, we're watching you after to see right. what you're doing and how you're standing up for us because yeah. it really is a mobilizing thing. It's not just saying that you're an ally, it's actually going into these spaces. Some of the things I said for um, like healthcare pros or fitness pros, I said, well, look at your community. What is the makeup? 
What are your percentages? Because if you are in a predominantly white area, please don't just go get a black person and bring them into <laughs> your space. Because that's going to be uncomfortable for them and for you because you're not going to know what to do with them. Right. So understand what's going on inside of you because as you work through that, then you will find your conviction and you will understand how to relate because it will just be person to person. It won't just be, I have to make sure that all black people, I protect them, that I am the one that keeps them safe. We good. We've been good. <laughs> we will always be good. We're just asking you all to help us because the more voices that are along the journey, we can actually get some stuff done. So yeah. it really, it, 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 the action will look different to me in every stage. But for massage therapists, like y'all are gold. <laughs> y'all are gold in real life. Like for me, I've been dying to get to mine since yeah. COVID happened. I've just been texting her like, are you doing okay? Yeah. Everything's yeah. good. Like just, I miss her. But one of the things I discussed was racial trauma and how it's different from PTSD because it is an ongoing toxic event. That weathering that we were talking about and how it breaks down the human body. So the research has been looking for coping for them. How do we healthily help them heal and cope? In the healthcare community, we have all of the tools, but because of the different stigmas, because of the lack of trust, because of the separation, there are some things that people don't understand is it, it will be beneficial for them. So Pilates, fitness, massage therapy, um, any type of physical, you know, movement, you should be trying to at least connect with people in communities so they can understand this is something I can use to help myself. And I can't speak enough about massage therapists. I really can't because I think <laughs> that that human connection, that touch, that belief that you are actually, you know, helping someone and doing it physically, like that is something that is hugely beneficial to black people and people of color who are dealing with ongoing trauma every day. So find ways to either connect with maybe other black um, LMTs, massage therapists, or are there other um, studios that maybe you can connect with and say, hey, maybe we can do a swap. We can have some of yours, you can have some, you know, something where you're actually forming that huge community so that they know here are resources and people that understand us that we can go to. Is there, are there certain things that we, you know, myself as a white person, well, language that I can use or ways that I can convey to non-white individuals in my community that this will be a safe place that you're coming into that I'm going to be a respectful practitioner mm -hmm. you know and and how to work with building trust you know mm -hmm. in those relationships like from mm -hmm. from your perspective like when you go to see your massage therapist you know what what are the things that mattered the most to you as a receiver of care? For me, she understood where I was coming from. She understood that I worked in an environment where I was the only person of color. Um, and so she understood that not only do I have physical stress from the job that I do, but the natural stress of being the minority in a, a majority environment. And I didn't have to explain it. I didn't have to say it. And I think part of it was how she grew up. She, she had already formed her beliefs. So her connection with me, it was not 
Um, it wasn't fake. I didn't have to, she didn't have to say, as a black person, how do you feel? She just understood when I said, these are the stresses that I have, here is why. She was like, bet, let's get to work then. So it wasn't, it, it didn't feel forced. And I think the more you place yourself in those environments with those people, of any race, I think you start to feel more comfortable. So there aren't special words that you have to use. It's just them being able to see. I can tell an ally immediately. I can tell an ally and I don't treat anybody differently if you're not, but I can tell and you don't have to say it to me because I have friends that have been allies for 30 years and maybe said something a week ago. And I'm like, girl, you've been an ally. Like, you're fine. <laughs> like, we, we, I'm glad that you're on the journey, but you had a belief inside that I was able to feel, that I was able to see. So my thing is just continue to educate and place yourself in those environments so that you can feel that natural connection. Um, another thing I've suggested is maybe, I don't know if you are, you have your own practice or you work for a practice, but having maybe a waiver or some type of a statement, because just like you would see the rainbow on a lot of um, different stores to know that that is a place where they can feel safe. There's not really a Black Lives Matter sign, but maybe there's something that explains your stance as a business so that when the person comes in, they read that and they're like, oh, they're aware, they're woke, and they they want to be an ally for us. So that's just a good physical idea of something that you could do. I'm curious about, um, you know, we do a lot in our trainings. I mean, Healwell really, um, our focus is on the, you know, quote, soft skills. So like mm -hmm. when people come to us, they're, it's postgraduate education, basically. So we mostly assume they know how to use their hands, but mostly they're doing horrible things with their mouths um, and not really, there's no connection between their brain and their heart and their mouth and, and or at least it's <laughs> a little disrupted. Um, and so, uh, but I'm really curious because we, as a, as a sort of, as a non-binary um, person, I will get calls sometimes and people say, well, we wanna do a special class about how to, how to work with people who are non-binary. And I'm like, well, I don't know, just pay attention and notice your implicit bias, I think. And so, I mean, I think we have a lot of work to do to understand racism and, mm. the, and the really baked in nature of it. And I feel like this this connects to your your idea that while we're educating, we don't have to like hole up in a cave. While you're learning the real specifics of the suffering and the ways that you've contributed to it, you can be present and ask mm -hmm. open-ended questions and invite people to share their experience with you. <laughs> you know, you don't have to you don't have to wear your anti-racist shirt. You just have to recognize that this is a person that you've never met, mm -hmm. who has lived a life that you haven't lived, and yes. be curious about their experience. Yes, yeah. yes. And I think now, it, we were, we're kind of, like I said, in the acute phase. So yes, it does feel good, especially in the South, to see you know a white person with a Black Lives Matter mask yeah. in a predominantly white Target, because I'm like, honestly, I, there have been some public outings where I'm like, I'm just not quite sure, because I know what area I live in. Um, but once you start, it's just like anything else. If you are a good natured person, if you are someone who truly believes from your heart that others matter more than you do truthfully, because that's what it is in healthcare, then you, you, it shines, it shows, people feel it. Like I say, kids 
feel energy like nobody's business. So, you know, we lose that filter a little bit as we get older. But I think if you're truly operating from that convicted space, then people will feel it. You don't have to have a shirt. But I do think for businesses, yes, entities, it is good to make a it to to make a stance or have a stance. Yeah, definitely. And so, um, what are your thoughts about? Um, I'm hearing a lot about like colorblindness not helpful. Don't tell me that. <laughs> so, for those of you who are just listening to the program, Dr. J Pop may have just detached her retina, rolling her eyes. Um, so. Um, so you have things to say. Tell us about this concept of colorblindness and how antithetical to solutions it is. It is literally probably the most annoying thing that I have heard because I am black. I am blackity black, okay? I love who I am. I love where I come from, no matter what my history says. I identify as a black person. So for you to tell me you don't see my color, it does not register how you think <laughs> it does. It actually registers so you don't see me, everybody's alike, but my experience is not like yours. So I'm asking you to see my color. I need you to actually pay attention. To me, I don't see color is your way of saying you don't want to do the work. You really just want everybody to get along. And that's not good enough for me. So yeah, that kind of burn it grinds my gears <laughs> yeah well I mean, I, that was that's a really clear description of sort of why that's not useful and I, I feel like as a white person it's a cop-out it's the way that I say that I don't have to do this work I get it mm -hmm. you know it's cool and so that leads me to another question which so I, I watched a documentary last night called disclosure about mm -hmm. um, trans people and um, it was amazing and horrible and horrifying but um, they played clips of uh, talk show hosts through, you know, the last couple decades who would have trans women on or trans men mm -hmm. and interview them and, and how many of them asked rude questions that are none of their business. Like, oh, so you used to have a penis. What is it like to have a vagina? And it's like, so there's a lot more to me than being trans. And, you know, and the whole documentary was interviews with trans people and sort of their whole experience over decades. And, but I feel like, I have black clients in my practice and mm -hmm. um, I'm thinking about a time when one of my black clients came in, we had only worked together maybe a couple times and we got along immediately just like as people. Um, but when she came in one day, she had long hair and I had only seen her like two weeks before. And I was like, oh, I said, how did you do that? And, and now I'm sitting here going, oh, that was, is that like asking the genitalia question? Like, because she was like, oh, it's just extensions, like whatever. And I was like, what does that mean? And, like, should I have gone and like looked that up? Was that like, I mean, the rudest thing? Yeah. Okay. So you're nodding. Right. Don't, right. Don't make the person a freak. Don't make them feel right. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it, to me, it's definitely one of the lesser offenses. If you've never seen how many, how a black person can change their hair. Um, but when I, like, when this grows into a fro and people want to touch it, I'm like, I'm not, a, we're not in the zoo right now. No, like, you don't pet, you don't pet people. Yeah. So think about that. that. And that's that level of awareness. Consider, would you want me coming and petting you right now? Oh, that's a pretty color. I love right. that new red that you put on your 
hair, I wouldn't, you wouldn't do that. So there are questions. Now, if it's someone that was your friend. Yeah. And you all had a relationship and be- you said, okay, I have a question. Cause I've had that. I've had people who are friends say, I just don't understand how it was short one day and long the next. That is, a, it's a question. I get yeah. it. But you have a relationship with me. So I know you're asking from the point of no knowledge and curiosity. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. Well, and I feel like this is, this is one of the things that just makes me nervous is this, and, and it, it puts me in the shoes of people who are afraid. So my pronouns are they and them. And yes, I see people do this dance where they just use Cal so they don't have to use a pronoun. And, and I get, or they, they just, or they just screw up like I do. Or yes. like they just screw up. I mean, Kathy and I, our friendship is hanging by a thread because she messed up <laughs> pronouns. Um, it's funny because I just learned about they and them. 2018 and I was like oh shoot I've probably messed up a few times then (laughs) right exactly well and I think this is a great it's not exclusive to racism like we are gonna mess up while we're trying to get it right and I now know that Mm -hmm. duh you don't just say whoa your hair looks so freakish tell me about it (laughs) this is so interesting and maybe I will call someone that I am friends with who knows about this and say, I had a client today and this is what her hair looked like. Well, how did that happen? Um, but that it puts a weird, it could potentially put a weird thing in the relationship with me and my client. Mm-hmm. If I sort of use her as my source of black people information. Yeah. The client. Yeah. Yes. The friend. No. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You got to navigate that yourself. <laughs> the client. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you have to, you definitely have to be careful with in the professional setting, how you approach those things for sure. You know, and I think, and it calls to us to not be afraid to screw up. I, I, I will screw up. Yes. But that's not going to stop me. And what I definitely want to say is remember every black experience is different. Yes. So you might screw up with the wrong person and when they are tired and fed up and lash out at you, understand it's from a place of, I've been doing this for years. I've been dealing with this stuff for years. I'm tired. I'm over it. And so it's not just you. It is the representation of what they have been dealing with. And what I want people to know is if you do get, someone does lash out at you. If you do make a mistake and someone doesn't correct you in the way that feels comfortable to you, (laughs) we're still dealing with some white privilege. You have to be able to say, okay, I'm I'm absorbing that one. You know, even if I didn't appreciate how it came out, I'm absorbing it. I understand the place that it came from. And now I will do better the next time. Yeah. Yeah. And that you may just have to let that go. I mean, that's, I can't remember which of the books it was that I was reading, but it was like, do not chase that person down and and beg them to forgive you. Just let it go. Yeah. Learn from it and move on. And move on. Yes. Yeah. I think, I don't know if it was you or Meister who said that unlearning and messing up are key. You have to. Moving forward. I mean, in being a person, right? In being, <laughs> I won't know what not to do if I don't do it or at least see it done. So the yes. mistakes are necessary to know what you should be doing along the way. Yeah. Yeah. Just so, I, I'm just so grateful that we're having this conversation. I think it's such an important conversation. Um, and I'll jump in when I do have questions, but Cal, you keep asking the same questions that I have. So. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
you know, what is what is what does allyship look like? You know, what right. what are those tangible things we can do? And I and I go right back to the beginning of this conversation around understand the history. Mm -hmm. So rather rather than just looking at the symptom, let's really understand the history of of, of, of what's going on here, folks. Well, and I find it I find it hard to imagine that if you really spend even a little bit of time with the history that compassion wouldn't replace like the enmity or the, you know, and not that it completely wholesale, like now I no longer have bias, but mm -hmm. oh my God, like, of course. Yeah. So, I mean, you just read a little bit of the history and you go, oh, like, wow. Talk about resilience and perseverance and, um, and yeah, like, yeah, we got, we have a lot of work to do. Um, yeah. So I feel like I've been getting a lot of mixed messages about, um, and, and this could very well boil down to, as it turns out, different people of color have different ideas about how white people <laughs> can engage in the solution. So I will not ask you to tell us what we should do, but in your opinion, some of the things that I've heard are that sort of white people have no business being sort of public voices about racism education. Um, and I, I, I feel like we need to make sure that we prioritize and pay black voices to really mm -hmm. educate in a way that white people can never educate white people. But I yeah. also, you know, reading White Fragility, I kept having to remind myself that it's written by a white woman. And mm -hmm. there is a lot in that book that she is holding your feet to the fire. Mm -hmm. And talking about her being white and saying, yep, I do it too. And yeah. we have to stop doing it. So where do you where do you see the rubber meet the road in terms of how we can be helpful without usurping? So it's funny. I was just watching a talk with three uh, three counselors, and one of them said, "In order to understand how to relate to another race, you need to understand your own race um, and and how you relate. Like, what is it to be? I know what it's like to be a black person." do you truly know what it's like to be a white person or are you just operating from who you are and what you've experienced in life? So I think it is important for your education to actually look at what your this white supremacy and privilege has looked, from, looked like. So those books like White Fragility, I understand because I will never understand completely what white fragility is i just know what it looks like i don't know what it feels like but i know what it i know what it feels like when it's directed towards me but yeah. only a white person could tell you truly what it feels like to be fragile and how to change it but in terms of um anti-racism when we're saying this is how we feel when you this is what xyz looks like that's because we've got 400, 500, 600 years of experience. So when it comes to this, the history, when it comes to explaining our own experience, listen to us. Let yeah. pay us to actually educate you. Um, but the books, it's like, that's fine. If, if that book came from her to me, because I'm like, yes, yeah, she could probably explain it. I just know what it feels like <laughs> when it comes to me. I just know what it feels like when it's directed at me. Um, I actually had a, a student, or no, it was a therapist reach out because she wanted to use some of the information from my webinar. And I made it clear, if you're trying to convey my experience, direct them to the webinar. Yeah. Because I can only tell my story that way. You, you still are looking through your own lenses. She didn't have any black people in her setting, in her environment. So as an ally, it is her job in her setting to at least 
give some bit of, hey, this is what's going on. Here are the Black voices that can educate you on this. Then let's come back and discuss what we learned so we can figure out how we can do better. So I think the reason you're hearing mixed voices is because it depends on what you're educating yourself on. That's going to determine the voice that you listen to. Yeah. Oh, no real answers. I love I it. I know. And that's just how I live. <laughs> and that's how I operate as a clinician, too. Like, really? I, it's a case by case. Yes. And, and I think you're, you are more aware and educated when you actually operate like that. When you don't operate as if you have a standard, the answer, a process that you yeah. could just filter through, that's not living. So Just say that not knowing is most intimate. Yeah, and I feel like that's yeah. You got to show up without all your. Oh, I know, I know. Um, yeah. Oh, and be willing to eat crow. Yes. I guess my last question, um, until like three a.m. when I sit up and go, oh, I forgot to ask that question. Um, is you know, so you said like if you're in a primarily white community, like don't go mm-hmm. get yourself a black person and sort mm-hmm. of you know right to teach you or to be in your your you know practice or whatever, but. I don't think that being in an all-white community exonerates you from allyship. No. And I feel like this is a place where, I mean, massage therapy is a very white profession. The practitioners mm-hmm. are mostly white. The consumers are mostly white. Um, and, you know, one of the things that um, we put out as a statement uh, got, got a little bit of pushback because we talked about how one of the ways you can be an ally, and I, and I would love for you to tell me this is a crazy thing to tell people and we should take it down. Um, if that's, if that's what you think, but I, we're here in Virginia. Um, a lot of the folks that we see are in Virginia and we are privy to some pretty racist opinions and conversations when we're, um, particularly when we're working with people like in the infusion center where they're sitting in there for four or five hours, killing time, massage therapist shows up, they're going to just talk your ear off for 15 or 20 Mm -hmm. minutes. And because many of our therapists are white. I think they feel comfortable. I mean, I show up and I kind of look like a skinhead. I think people go, oh, that nice white boy, I'm going to tell him all about, you know, (laughs) whatever. And so they feel comfortable sharing Mm -hmm. what they think other people also think. And that I feel like one of the ways we can be allies is just to simply say, you know what, actually, I'd really appreciate it if you wouldn't talk like that while I'm here. Um, And that we can say that right sitting here, right? And and I, and I loved what you said, um, and I've seen you've written it and said it many times, every time you stand up, you get stronger. You do. And you, those opportunities go by. Like mm-hmm. that door doesn't stay open. You've got like that five second window where this is <laughs> useful to say something. Yeah. And, and it may be that that person then stiffens up and doesn't enjoy the rest of their massage, but nobody's gonna die. Right. And you just made a really important change or like there's yes. someone on your table saying something racist or something that you don't agree with. And mm-hmm. yeah. I, it's funny. I had a, I did an, a private webinar for a clinic in Canada actually. And the guy said he usually goes into um, kind of a country cowboy area, very rural and acknowledged there are a lot of comments that, that he did not agree with. And I said, I'm not asking you to be Braveheart and go into these areas guns blazing. But the more you educate yourself, the, you're actually going to change your responses. 
because it might not be, hey, that makes me feel uncomfortable. I really don't believe the same way. Do you mind if we change them? It may actually be, well, have you considered? Because I read this book or I read this paper, or I watched this documentary, then it actually can become a teaching point yeah. because you're yeah. not just shutting them down. You're right. saying, I want you to look at a different point of view. That <laughs> makes that, if they don't want to talk about it anymore, they will clam up. Yeah. But then you, I mean, that's probably yeah. somebody that wasn't ready. But if they're ready, then you actually were an ally in educating someone of a different perspective. So even that will morph the more comfortable you become in becoming an ally. Yeah. Well, I, you just highlighted something for me that I think sometimes I, I think I need to shut it down because my assumption is that this is a provincial person who doesn't want to think any differently. And so, you know, I'm just going to tell them to zip mm -hmm. it. And, and I don't give them the benefit of the doubt that maybe they'll be interested in what made me think this way and yeah. there's a quote from malcolm x and i'm not going to say it right but he basically says don't condemn someone for how they think because you did not always think the way that you do now 20 yeah. years ago there are people who are allies now who probably back then were saying all lives matter i don't see color all of those things because they thought that was the good thing to do but now that they're learning they see nah this isn't so that person is on a different you know, part of the journey and yeah. whether they're ready to keep going, we'll, you may be able to help them along the way. Yeah. Here, here's one of the challenges that I have, like mm -hmm. in, in, in a personal context, in my personal life, you know, I can stand up and, and use my voice in a way that I feel is reflective of who I am as a human and how I think. Here in, B, in British Columbia, where I'm at, massage therapy is a regulated health profession. And we have we have we have legislated requirements, um, and part of our legislated requirements is that uh, we do not engage in discussions with our patients about our personal beliefs mm -hmm. or or perspectives. Um, so it becomes tricky for me as a practitioner, and this yeah. has happened to me many times. Um, I live in a community, and this is Canada, so pick a community, any community where indigenous and white relations are very uh, tense. Mm, okay. um, I frequently hear um, racist comments directed at the indigenous community here from, from patients on my table. Mm -hmm. um, our standard directive here is to redirect the conversation to the patient, okay, um, how's this feeling in your neck to try and get them away from engaging you in that conversation because it's outside of my scope of practice and not appropriate for me to, right. to get into that conversation with someone who's coming to me for care. Mm -hmm. That's hard to do. It's, it's tricky, it's sticky. Um, and I still grapple with that, you know, because there are moments where like, Oh, how can I, how can I not just say something about, right. please be a respectful human while you are in <laughs> yeah. here on my table, you know, you know what I mean? <laughs> on my so that, yeah, it's, it's such a challenging thing for me and I grapple with that all, all the time. So if either of you can, you know. Well, the, remember in the beginning when I said, could you have a, a blanket tolerance statement 
that was given to them when they came, is that against practice, their practice act or? Well, I mean, uh, t technically here in British Columbia, every single regulated healthcare professional, that, that is written right into our, our legislation. Mm. Is, is it practiced and respected? No. Oh, hell no. So this is where <laughs> I say, and this is why I, 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 sometimes I say don't be Braveheart, sometimes I say do. <laughs> because if you're telling me that the problem is at the legislative branch, that's where I'm going. And I'm going guns blazing. And my example that I give people, we had um, here, they were saying we're not, a, a big healthcare company was saying we're not going to approve um, standards for children. And if they can't stand, <laughs> then if the goal is to walk, then it takes out a piece of equipment that is extremely important. And so the way that they worded it, they said, we will not approve any standards. So that was a bulk of our population that was not going to get equipment that they needed to meet their independence goals. Our manager and several others in the vendor space actually went to the legislature and said, this is unacceptable and here is why. Because there was no understanding of, hey, y'all are just writing these things, we're actually living it and treating. And they got it changed based on them continuing to go. To the, so to me, it says there is a there is a environment that is being fostered, and they are basically keeping their hands over your mouth. Then something in that legislation needs to change. And maybe it's you guys get to your governing body, you guys have meetings and discuss what's going on, and see if there's a way that you can do it collectively. But if you are literally being held to a standard that you don't believe in and it is actually hampering your practice then i'm going there that's where i'm going first now if there's you know ways that you can do it and still stay you know in your clinic that's awesome but it sounds like the whole system needs to change and we're clearly breaking down systems all over so why not just keep going <laughs> that would be my that would be my advice well, and, and you won't be surprised, Kathy, to hear me say that I'm Braveheart all the way. Um, <laughs> and, and I think particularly, like, the, the valuing of all human lives is not opinion. It's not, I mean, it's not my politics. It's not, it is not up for debate. And so if you are speaking in my treatment space in a way that is unhealthy, and I do think it's a public health issue it when is. you allow racist and hate speech to continue, and you don't have to make a huge deal about it. And you know, like we said in our article, you don't necessarily want to bring it up or redirect. I was going to say confront, but now you've educated me. You don't want to sort of say like, "So I was reading this article about blah blah blah," while they're on the table necessarily. Right. But it might mean that when the session is over or when they rebook, you say, "So listen, last time you were here, we got to talking about quack 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 and." here's why I'm concerned about that. And I would love to keep working with you. And I, I can't, I don't want to talk about that. I, I really value all human life or, you know, whatever feels congruent to you. But I think that we think it has to be this really, this huge conflagration and, you know, that we're going to, and it, it could just be, this is what's true. Take yeah. it or leave it, you know, yeah. and, and you might lose clients. I think this is the thing we're so afraid of is like, 
if you lose that client, did you want that client? Did you want them? Yeah. <laughs> oh, I don't worry about that. Yes. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. To me, the way the Get universe out. works, if you lose one, 10 more are going to show up, especially totally. if you're doing the right thing. Yeah. Get out. Yep. Exactly. <laughs> Beat it. So, that was Braveheart. <laughs> Get out. That's Braveheart. Um, <laughs> I apologize to our Scottish listeners. Um, so, so I guess my, um, I'd love to talk to you both for a lot longer about this, but, um, and maybe we'll make you come back um, or beg you to come back. Um, but I just, I, I want to say that it's, um, you know, our goal at Heal Well is, is aspirational, but it is to be a part of ending racism, you know, not mitigating it, not lessening it. And that this is not about kindness to black people. Mm -hmm. Like you have to keep being kind to your fellow humans, regardless mm -hmm. of the color of their skin, but we don't end racism by being nice to black people. And that you're phoning it in if that's how you think you're going to do it. <laughs> so you really need to look at your policies. You definitely need to like become friends with your whiteness. And mm -hmm. that's a, that's a tall order. We're going to have to find a guest who can come and talk with us about that because really owning your whiteness. Um, that's not a weekend project. Um, nope. and it, and it's really essential. I think you said in something I read that an ally with unexplored blind spots is not helpful. Not and, effective. Yeah. You, and, and if you don't have unexplored blind spots, call me and tell me how you did it. That's a huge blind spot. <laughs> right. That is a huge blind spot. That's a huge um, one. Yeah. Um, so yes, broad, broad side of the blind side, blind spot barn. <laughs> so um, do you guys have uh, closing thoughts? I think I've, I've said it, I've ended everything this way to say this is a marathon. It is, it is not a sprint. It is not a hundred yard dash. This is a marathon. So really do that work on yourself so that your conviction carries you through and not just the bandwagon of what's going on in this era. Yes to all of it, <laughs> please. Yes. Uh, you know, just yes to all of it, please. And, and, and again, um, I look forward to when we can get Dr. J-Pop back to explore anything in the universe that Dr. J Pop would like to talk about. <laughs> That's right. You tell anything. <laughs> anything at all. Fine. I'll come back anytime. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. Um, <laughs> wow. Well, thank you guys uh, for joining us and we hope that you'll keep joining us and, and, um, and that you, you know, you're eating your carbs and doing what you need to run the marathon because we are going to run the marathon and, uh, and, and it's a marathon that we run from the inside out. And that's, you know, that's really what we try to do at Heal Well. So if you want to keep being uncomfortable with us and uh, feeling all the things, um, keep listening. Interdisciplinary is produced by Heal Well. Our theme music is by Harry Pickens. You can send us feedback at info at healwell.org. That's info at healwell.org. New episodes will be posted weekly via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and our Facebook page. Thank you.